If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's page 555 in the Pew Bible. Um, last week, we heard from the preacher Koheleth. It starts with a Q, by the way, for what it's worth. Uh, Ecclesiastes is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Koheleth, which means the preacher or really the assembler, kind of more literally. Uh, and he's been teaching through here. And last week we heard how he, he was talking about how we need to be in, in the house of God, as he called it, in the Lord's house. Specifically, that we need to come to listen first, listen to God. Uh, and secondly, that we need to be sparing in our words, okay, that we're, particularly that we, the words we use with God, that we tell God we're going to do something, that we do it, as well as with other people. The next several chapters are going to talk about how we understand the world outside the church. In other words, as we're coming in and out of worship, he said, when you come to the house of God, do these things. So he's assuming that's part of our, our routine. He says, how do you cope with you know, the, the enigma of that life on the outside is, you know, it causes us to call it the real world. Uh, because, you know, I mean, think, you know, Peter, remember when Jesus came to Peter's house after synagogue one Sabbath, and Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and so Jesus healed his mother-in-law, and then they went ahead and ate, and later on that day, Jesus was healing all sorts of people, and this was on the Sabbath, just a, a big momentous day. But the next day, Peter had to go back to work. Go back to fishing and, and dealing with his business partners, his brother Andrew and James and John, and, and dealing with their customers. You know, it can get pretty ugly out there when you're back in the work world, right? In fact, just a couple stories later, we're told how Peter was out fishing one day. They worked all night long and they caught nothing. So how do you deal with living in the, the real world after you've spent time uh, before the Lord and, and listening to the Lord. The good news is God doesn't just meet with us here. Okay, he meets with us out in, in his world uh, as well. This morning we're going to look at a little larger portion of scripture uh, that focuses on some of the traps of, of money and possessions. So I'm going to start reading in verse 8 of chapter 5 and we're going to read through verse 9 of chapter 6. So hear the Lord. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, it's fleeting. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, 
he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, sickness, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything Yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite's not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come, I'm um, sorry, stop there. Quite a portion. Let me, let me pray. Let me ask God to help us uh, sift our way through this, understand what the Lord would tell us. Father, Before the world, we, we live in a country, a nation of relative affluence. Uh, we have varied amounts here, Lord, but uh, as you tell us here, it's, it's a gift from you. So help us understand how to see and, and, and use and not be used by uh, the things uh, that you give us, uh, the material things. Uh, help us, teach us what you've said in this word uh, by your spirit. And we pray all this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the, the reason I read the whole passage is because it all fits together, because it starts out in chapter 5 as he's talking about this love of money as a sad investment from God. Uh, the, the results that it has, you invest the money and the, the crop that you get is a, is a sad crop. And then 
Then he talks about a bad crop, the bad result that comes from the investment. And then he, towards the end, of, at the end of chapter five, there he starts talking about a wise investment, a good investment. Then when he starts chapter six, he goes back to be talking about a bad investment that happens in having the love of money. And then he ends with a sad investment. So he, it's what we call a chiasm that uh, starts, goes to a center point, and comes back to where it starts. And so I'm going to follow Doug O'Donnell's uh, kind of outline because it, it really fits the passage. Uh, but instead of doing five points, we're going to do three points, which should help, <laughs> but because they match up. And the first one is that the, the love of money is a, is a sad investment. Uh, he, he summarizes it in chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now notice, he's talking about a love of money. I mentioned last week how Paul, when he, when he writes to Timothy, <clears throat> he doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. And he's just quoting what, what Ecclesiastes says here, that the love of money will not bring this uh, satisfaction. And the, the sad crops that come from an investment in the love of money can just can bring oppression and dissatisfaction. Now, I want you, as we listen to these things, you may hear it and say, well, wealth isn't my problem. <laughs> I can sit this one out today. I'll think of all the people who need it. But the, the love of money can preoccupy our heart if you don't have very much and things are really tight. Right? Because you, you can th be thinking about money because you don't have it just as much as you're thinking about money because you do have it. And so the, and, and beyond just money, it's, it's it, money isn't just about money. Money is about what it does for us. And it does something different for every one of us. Some people, the idea if I have money is I'll have some security, I'll have stability. For some people, the, the, the reason my heart wants to chase money is, is I feel it'll give me prestige or it might give you power or it might give you leverage. Uh, so it's, it's really what's behind the love of money, what we believe money is going to accomplish for us is at the root. And all of us have temptations in, in, in those various directions and they're accomplished uh, by money. So, so as we hear these, I don't want you to just filter out everything that's being said because he just talks about wealth uh, and accumulation of money. The first thing he says is the... The sad investment of money is, he says, don't be surprised if you see the oppression of the poor. He said in verse 8, if you, see, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and a violation of justice and righteousness, he says, don't be amazed at the matter. He says, for the high official is watched by a higher official and there are yet higher ones over them. You know, do you ever have times where you get, you get stuck on a call to customer service? And you call, and, and they can't help you, and so they pass you on to somebody else, and they can't help you, and they pass you on to somebody else, and you can get caught in that whole corporate loop. And in that situation, you're feeling like the, the poor customer, and, and corporations can be notorious for, in a sense, oppressing the poor because everybody's trying to make sure that they keep their job intact, and they're, they're not responsible for anything, and so they pass it off to somebody else, and then the person who's needing help gets left out in the cold. And of course, it happens in governments, that's specifically what he's referring to, that in 
you know, governments are dangerous because you get these layers and layers and layers of, of bureaucracy that often end up oppressing the, the poor because the, there's, there's a logjam that enables the poor to not even be able to get anything done because everybody's kind of trying to protect their personal fiefdom uh, within the government. And, I mean, remember the scandals at the Veterans Administration a couple of years ago? I mean, it came out big the last couple of years. It's been going on for years where you had people who, you know, regarding health care, which was promised to them because they served our nation, uh, were, were you know, having to wait months for to be seen, let alone to be treated. And some people were dying. Uh, and so that's one reason why, you know, throughout history, the wisest governments have been the more limited governments because they don't build up this bureaucracy. But notice, this is thousands of years old. This isn't something new. You know, I mean, we're going to hear, hear politicians, you know, one of the things that always comes along when politicians make all these promises, we're going to give you this, give you this, give you this, it means they've got to expand what they're doing to give more stuff away. You know, when, when we added the Affordable Care Act a few years back, they, like, doubled the size of the IRS. More and more layers of bureaucracy. And, and so it was interesting, uh, in November, I had a meeting at one Thursday it was like 4 p.m. a Thursday up in Charlottesville. And so Margaret uh, rode up with me, and I'm, I'm off on Friday. So we just stayed overnight. And on Friday, the next day, we drove up to Montpelier, which is about 30 minutes north of Charlottesville. And it's where James Madison's home it was. It is. It was his home back then. It's still there. Uh, so, but what's interesting is it wasn't just an old house. I mean, that was interesting in the history of the house. But for me, one of the most fascinating parts was that there was about a five-minute clip, uh, a movie that we watched beforehand, and it was really well done. I mean, it was kind of cartoon-like, so kids would really understand what was going on. And they explained what it was that James Madison, as the architect of the U.S. Constitution, what it was that he contributed and what he talked about was the biggest thing we need to be careful is we need to protect ourselves from ourselves. He, he, it was, what, he, what they were talking about and, and, and explaining in this little clip was basically what we've talked about in Sunday school is, is original sin. They didn't, talk, they didn't talk about religion or biblical impact or anything, but they said what James Madison was talking about is that all of us are tempted to want to be greedy and get what we want out of things. So he, they were very purposeful in the constitution of our country to build in checks and balances, just because we need to have a healthy mistrust of ourselves and of each other in love, okay. and in order that we can still be friends at the end of the at the end of the day. And and it was fascinating how, you know, they understood everybody was seeking for their own gain, and that's exactly exactly what Kohelet is writing about here in Ecclesiastes. It's, it's sad because those without power can just get ground up by the machine. But he also says, don't be surprised by an unsatisfied appetite. At the end of chapter 6, at the very end of the passage, verse 7, he says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity. And the striving after the wind. He said it's sad that our, our appetites wander. In other words, that they're, they're, never, they're never satisfied. And again, 
you know, don't just be thinking about money and possessions. We can be, your appetite could be for academic prowess. You know, if I can just get the top grade in the, in the class. And, and then you just, you know, you got a new semester. You get another, another exam, another, or, or athletic victory, or musical accomplishment, or sexual pursuits. Because any of these appetites that don't get satisfied, they can become addictive because when, when one of your, something you, you do well or something, something uh, when it clicks for you and you have success in that area, it can, be, it can be that which just connects with your heart and all of a sudden you find, oh, I find satisfaction there. And again, that's not evil. That's blessing from God to give us satisfaction in a particular area. But the problem is we start latching onto that area. Oh, I, you know, I, I really did well there. That's where my life will be found. And that's, that's what he's warning about, whether it's with, with money or with any other, uh, you know, we find popularity or you find a sense of accomplishment or acclaim or monetary gain in some area. You think, boy, that's where I can go back to to find more life. When they create an appetite, they can almost, they can create an addiction. That's where I keep going back to. That's where I keep going back to because I think I can find life there. You'll end up coming up cold, and that's what makes it a sad investment. So he says the love of money will bring about a sad investment for you, but he also says the love of money can be a bad investment as well, and he gives a couple of examples that end up badly. He says the love of money is a bad investment because it can vanish in an instant. At the the middle part of chapter 5, he says there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. It doesn't tell us what the venture is, but we've all, you know, he's talking in generalities, but we've all seen situations like that. He says, and he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. What he means is he's got nothing to give his son because he lost it all. No, I lost my place. There. And as he comes from his mother's womb, shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You know, the consequence in this particular situation he describes is that somebody made sure they were keeping all their money, and then something happened, and they lost it. And they had nothing to be able to pass on to his family. He, he had hoarded what he earned, and then poof, it was, it was lost. And he, he's not saying don't save up things, but he's saying if you set your hope on that, if you're counting on that, disasters happen. You know? Remember Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6? He said, he, he warned us about putting our, our, the treasure of our hearts on, on earthly treasures. He says, the, the problem with make, having those be the treasure of your heart, of what you hope in, it's not that you can't have things and enjoy them, but if they're the treasure of your heart, what's really most central, that, that everything else orbits around that in your heart, is he says, moths destroy, moths and rust destroy, thieves come in and steal. He said things happen. You know, moths are are external attack that can destroy it. Rust is an internal attack. Thieves coming in from outside. Jesus was just saying the same thing that Ecclesiastes is saying. Be careful what owns your heart. 
what, what owns your heart because it can end you up in a bad investment. And he says again in, in chapter 6, he repeats the same thing. He says, bad investments might not even be enjoyable. You might have everything. He says, what if, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many. Now remember, in, in the Israelite realm, in their milieu, and be, because of things that God taught in Proverbs and, and, and in the Old Testament Scripture, having lots of children was valuable. That was a sign of God's blessing because, for one thing, a lot of children died, so you need to have lots of children because for children to survive. But also, you're generally living agriculturally or you're raising flocks and you needed lots of helpers. You needed lots of workers. Plus, they're the ones who are going to support you when you get old. So the more, the, the better. And so there's a blessing for having lots of children and the idea of a blessing of a, of a long life. And, it's, and he says, if you had 100 children and lived really long, but his soul is still not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. That was, on, that was honor to be given at the end of life. He says, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. That's a, a hard image. I mean, you, you may have lost a child or had, and, and that's painful. So it's not to make light of that. But his point, he, he's, he's obviously using an exaggerative point, but to say, you know, that child has rest, hasn't had to deal with the oppression and the pain and, and the grind that can come in this life, has been spared that. He says, verse 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, Remember, Methuselah was, what, 969 years old. He lived almost 1,000 years. And, and, these, and Kohalath is saying, imagine you lived twice that long, yet enjoyed no good. Don't all go to one place. You know, you could have 100 children. You could live 2,000 years. And I know some of you immediately thought, if I had 100 children, I wouldn't be real satisfied either. It would be kind of overwhelming. Right. <laughs> Actually, some of the biblical characters had as many as 80, 80 children. Of course, they obviously they had a lot of wives back then. And, um, and, and who wants to live to be 2,000 years old, let alone 100 years old, uh, with some of the challenges. But, but he's, he's saying if, if you had all the things that we expect would give us joy, but they don't, you don't get that satisfaction. What it means is a whole lot of work a hard life with nothing back for it. That's why he says in the first couple verses of chapter 6, there, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. He got everything he wanted. Yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. He even goes on to say it's a grievous evil. You think of Jesus telling the parable about the man who accumulated so much, he had so many crops that he couldn't even store it in the barns he had. So he said, well, I'm going to build some more barns. I'm going to store it, so I'm going to be able to kick back and be in good shape. And it says that night the Lord came to him and said, it's over, I'm bringing you home. Your life's over. He said he just wasted his time. That's kind of what Kohelis is describing here. And 
in part, he's saying God builds into the creation an inability for permanent enjoyment and satisfaction. But because he wants to drive us to him as the source of life. That he's, he's very particularly speaking in this case of someone who has been given these things. But notice it says, God does not give him the power to enjoy them. God's the one who gives enjoyment. Enjoyment doesn't come from the things. Enjoyment comes from the Lord enabling us, enabling us to enjoy what we have. And that's, thankfully, there's good news. There, there is a wise investment. There's a good investment buried right in the middle of this harrowing stretch of, talking about the, the traps of evil, uh, is, is this good news that he says in verses 18 through 20 at the end of chapter 5, where he says, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting. So there is something good. He says it's to eat and drink and to find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given it. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy, to enjoy them. Notice he says to enjoy them. To accept his lot, to rejoice in his toil. He says this is the gift of God. It's a, it is a gift. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I mean, notice, he's not anti-enjoyment. He's not even anti-wealth. He talks about being able to enjoy these things. He talks about these being a gift from the Lord for the purpose of enjoyment. God gives things to be enjoyed. So, so what's the deal? How can he say this when he's saying all these other things? He's just said later on that you know God... Something was given by God and it wasn't enjoyed. Well, he's he's talking about the difference between living life under the sun and living life in light of the Lord, under heaven, if you will. To lock in on the fact that what you have, whether it's much or whether it's little, it's a gift from God. That's his grace. That's his giving to you. That if you just live life under the sun, and even though... Anything that anybody has was given to them by God. It's a, it's a gift. But if they don't acknowledge God, if they don't recognize it's from him, they won't get the satisfaction because the satisfaction that comes from the gift is that it's, it's tied to the giver. It's tied to the one who, who, who passes it on to us. I mean, at the very end there, it even says, God will keep you occupied with joy in your heart. I mean, that, that's just this sweet picture. If you let God be your God and if, and if you live you know, in, in submission to him that, that I'm trusting him, that in this given moment, whatever he's given me, whether it's a little, whether it's a lot, whether it's somewhere in between, even if it's kind of a hard stretch right now, God has given it and God is my God and, and he knows what I'm doing and I can find my joy in the Lord. The when I was in college, I was given a book to read, uh, and it was so helpful for me. It just informed kind of my outlook for the rest of my life. And he said, look, all jobs stink. And that just gave me hope. 
because, which sounds pretty bad, but what it made me realize is he says, they're, they're, they, all, they all stink. You just got to find a job and, you know, find whatever you do and make it good. Don't rely on your job to be that which is going to satisfy you. Don't be looking for, if I get the perfect, my dream job. Guess what? When you get your dream job, it's going to, you get it. Like we've been talking about in Sunday school class, Genesis 2 still happened, or Genesis 3 rather. There's still a curse on work. Work is good. We're called to work. It's fulfilling, but there's a curse that's going to fight against you. Your best, the best things you enjoy are just going to drive you up the wall. It's It's like I tell couples I do premarital counseling. I said, you know, marriage is a joy. God's married you, brought you to somebody to be together. But he also wants to sanctify you. He's in the process of trying to make you more like Jesus. The biggest difference between you and Jesus right now is obviously your sin, which you didn't have. And so he wants to put you in situations that bring your sin to the surface. And so he's matched you up with somebody who can push buttons that nobody else can push. <laughs> they're going to show you the areas of sin so you can see them and die to them and, and ask the Lord for mercy. You, I mean, God matches you up with the right person, but it's still going to be hard because that person, just like you, is a sinner. And it's the same way with work, the same way uh, with, with, with the labor. And so you can have enjoyment. You know, if, if you find your joy in the Lord and do the job to the best of your ability, the, the enjoyment of it develops. Devel- develops and, and he's just saying that the the love of money is and and, and wealth of, of what it will get for me is really dangerous phil reichen who's the president of uh, wheaton college describes a a painting that's hangs in the louvre uh that was uh done by a, a painter in the 16 1700s it's called the money lender and his wife and it's, it's the scene, there's a table, and you've got the money lender sitting on the one side, and he's got all his stacks of, of coins uh, in front of him that he's looking at. And his wife is sitting next to him, and she's got her Bible sitting there. But she's not looking at her Bible, she's, she's looking over at, at, at his coins. And he's talking about just the, the, the temptation, the alluringness is there. And in the middle of the picture, down the bottom, there's a small mirror kind of out in front of them on the table. And reflected in the mirror is the window that obviously is facing them. And in the middle of the window are uh, the crossbars, which are, of course, in the shape of a cross. And you kind of see in the bottom, it looks like an image of somebody looking up at the cross. And he's, he, it's a picture of the, the hope that's the alternative from being captivated by the love of money. He's painting a picture of what Ecclesiastes is writing about. It's, you know, what, what draws your gaze? What, what is it that locks the eyes of your heart in on? Is, is it money and what it offers? Maybe freedom or fame or prestige or comfort, security? Or, or is it the cross and the freedom that it offers uh, the freedom to be, to be able to own money, to have stuff, to enjoy it, because you know it's a gift from the Lord, or not be owned by it. But yesterday in the men's breakfast, we uh, heard, um, listen, Tim Keller preaching on a passage uh, about generosity, and he referred to First Chronicles 29, where David 
He was thanking the Lord for all the people in Israel who had brought offerings to, to build the temple that his son would eventually build. Listen to what David, David understood what Koheleth is writing about. It says, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head over all. Notice, this is David. He was the king. But he says, this is your kingdom, Lord. He recognized God is over everything. And then he said, listen to what he says. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all these things come from you. And of your own, in other words, what you've given us that's yours, have we given you? We're giving back to you. But we're strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. The shadow is the, is the same word as vanity that Ecclesiastes keeps using. Oh, Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have, provided for, for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and it's all your own in other words David didn't say look God what we brought for you we're going to use this for you <clears throat> he says God we've got a whole lot here to give to you and it's pretty amazing because it's yours it was yours to start with you only gave it to us in the first place it was because he understood that because the people understood that that God was able to work so uniquely and powerfully in him and through him. And it points us back to the Lord. The reason I read that passage out of 2 Corinthians 9 before the offering is Paul just reminded us the same thing, that Jesus, remember it says, he, he who was rich became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It was his giving of himself that gave life to us. That's why we have a reason to find our joy in him. And that way, when God gives us things, we can enjoy the things that he gives us. But you, you will enjoy them to the degree that you realize they're just being lent to you. You're, you're a steward, you're managing the things that belong to the king, to the Lord. Uh, and he wants to bless you with the chance to use those things. So let's ask the Lord to help us uh, to have that shape how we go into this week. Father, we thank you that you are a giving God, as David acknowledged in that prayer with uh, all the people. They were building a temple for you, but they were building it with that which you had given to them. Lord, you know how we are. You, you've, you're the one who owns all things, and so you made us in your image. And so when we own things, we're, we're, we're tasting a bit of what it is to be made in your image, and yet we can so quickly turn, cut you out of the picture and make it all about us, what we think we can do. And, and, and if, if we have enough stuff, then we can make our lives be what we want them to be and leave you in the dust. Forgive us, Lord, for uh, the, the ways that we do that. Help us this week, even as you show us the, uh, what you've given us, 
resources, stuff, people, relationships, our health, that we would treasure it as a gift from you, your grace. Uh, and that we would live in light of that and that other people would, would taste and see that you are good uh, because they see us satisfied and joining you. We thank you. You give us reason for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.